0: Welcome to That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we are joined by Ron Brownstein to discuss his new book, Rock Me on the Water, 1974, the year Los Angeles transformed movies, music, television, and politics. Ron is a senior editor at The Atlantic and a senior political analyst for CNN. He is a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist for his coverage of presidential campaigns. Ron Brownstein, welcome to That Said.
1: No, oh, thanks for having me, Michael.
0: So this was a wonderful book, Rock Me on the Water. It brought back a million memories. I, I was in college during this time period, and I should say, of course, to our listening audience, that you and I are both State University of New York at Binghamton alums, Harper College, now Binghamton University. Uh, the best, a long way
1: from the West Coast.
0: A long way from the West Coast, but but the best education a dollar could buy, I think. Absolutely. So so tell us, though, a little bit, um, Ron, about your um, path from from Queens and a New York Mets fan to, to L.A. And, and Rock Me on the Water.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I grew up in New York. I grew up in Queens. Um, uh, my dad was an electrician. My mom worked uh, uh, only part of the time I was growing up. She worked as a receptionist for a doctor. Um, and so like a lot of, you know, middle class kids in, in New York, uh, I went to SUNY uh, and uh, particularly SUNY Binghamton, which was a was a you know, considered uh, uh, perhaps the strongest academically of the Sunnis. And I, I while I was there, I met someone uh, who worked for the PIRGs. Remember the PIRGs, the public interest research groups yeah. um, that were, uh, you know, kind of uh, trying to uh, enlist students to, to work on different um, causes, environmental and otherwise. I met someone there and they offered, he offered me a job when I graduated in 1979 uh, to go down in Washington uh, and work for an organization that was affiliated with Ralph Nader called the Center for Study of Responsive Law. And I kind of got there at the tail end of the Nader's Raiders era from the early 70s when there were a lot of projects that had been started but not finished. And I was basically hired at the ripe old age of 21 uh, to both finish some of these reports and books and also to hire and supervise a staff of other people to finish them. So I did that for a few years, uh, wrote a couple, of, uh, worked on a couple of big projects, including one book, Uh, called Reagan's ruling class, which profiled the top 100 people in the Reagan administration. Uh, And, you know, I always wanted to be a journalist. Uh, At at SUNY, I was the editor of the school newspaper, which you will know is called the pipe dream, uh, expressing their belief that the American dream was a pipe dream and a good 60s fashion. Um, So after a few years of working on these, uh, finishing these book projects, I went to work for a magazine in Washington called National Journal. Um, And National Journal uh, was a weekly founded in the 70s that provided a really thorough, detailed, nonpartisan analysis of difficult public policy issues, complex public policy issues. And uh, in some ways, uh, it is an artifact of an earlier time in Washington when the idea was that, you know, senators from both parties would kind of reason together based on, uh, you know, absorbing uh, information about difficult policy choices, whereas now it's more the opposite. You know where you're going to end up and you're just looking for reasons to justify how you got there. Um, but having anyway, I did that for a few years, ended up covering uh, national politics and um, the White House for them. By the time uh, I was there, that was the first campaign I covered. It was the 1984 presidential campaign. I then covered the Reagan White House uh, with Jim Baker and Dick Darman uh, uh, and, uh, and Lee Atwater uh, at the RNC later uh, for a few years, and then I made a really important decision, you know, which was which was you know not a straight line decision. After a few years there, over the course of a year, I had job offers in Washington from the Washington Post, uh, the New York Times, and the LA Times, and um, I decided not to take any of them, and I decided to move out to California for the first time because I felt like if I took those jobs in Washington, I might never leave, you know, and I felt very strongly that that would be a mistake to just do 40 years in Washington uh, straight out of my life. So I moved to California. Uh, I wrote a book called The Power and the Glitter, which was a history of the relationship between Hollywood and Washington going back to the 1920s. Uh, And when I finished that, uh, while I was doing that to kind of make ends meet, I wrote for the L.A. Times Sunday Magazine occasionally, and I wrote a monthly column in their Sunday opinion section. So when I finished, they offered me a job based in L.A., covering national politics out of LA, did that for a few years and then moved back to Washington, uh, became the chief political correspondent and and started writing a column for the LA Times in the summer of 1974, a weekly column that I've literally been writing ever since. Um, uh, ran That column ran in the LA Times till 2017 for 20, 23 years. So I stayed with the LA Times for about 15 more years, 17 more years after that. But after one too many buyouts uh, in 2007, I left. Even though they kept running my column uh, and joined Atlantic Media, uh, where originally I I spent a lot of time back at National Journal, where I was in the early '80s, and then gradually shifted my time over uh, more to the Atlantic. And in addition to that, you know, I've always had I've had this relationship since the late '90s with CNN as a political analyst. There Uh, took a few year hiatus, but basically have been doing political analysis on CNN for most of the past 23 years now, and been writing a weekly column for them. Uh, uh, As well, since uh, about 2017. Uh, After uh, in in the second Obama term, uh, I had been in Washington at that point for 21 years consecutively and I felt again the need to get out I was uh, spending, you know, I, I, as you know, I write a lot in my day job about demographic and cultural and social change and how that affects politics and vice versa. And I thought it would be good to get back to California, which was really at the forefront of all of those changes. Um, So I came back here in early 2014 um, and began to get more interested in this period uh, to to, to now to kind of take the story to how I ended up on Rock Me on the Water. When I wrote, anybody writing about Hollywood, uh, as I was when I wrote The Power and the Glitter uh, in the late 80s and early 90s, you know, recognizes that the early 70s in Hollywood is viewed as the other golden age. Uh, in Hollywood history uh, beside uh, the World War II era. And it was a period of really uh, kind of landmark, but more socially aware films in Hollywood has probably produced at any other point uh, in its history. The era from Bonnie and Clyde and The Graduate as the kind of the forward end in 67 through Easy Rider, Midnight Cowboy, Five Easy Pieces, uh, Carnal Knowledge, uh, et cetera. So I always was kind of aware of that, Michael. And then when I got out here, Uh, I started listening more than I ever had before to the Southern California sound of that same era. Being a New Yorker, I I didn't really spend a lot of time with Jackson Brown and Joni Mitchell and Linda Ronstadt and the Eagles in the early 70s. But when I came out here, I kind of discovered it. And I I do remember kind of a little bell going off in my head saying, Hey, that's kind of interesting that this was happening at the same time as what is recognized as the golden age in Hollywood. But the final kind of tumbler clicked into place uh, maybe about a year or a year and a half after I got here, I went to a political event. I think it was for Elizabeth Warren at Norman Lear's house. You know, I was invited to, as a, as a reporter, to come see Elizabeth Warren. And I remember after, as, as we were driving home, thinking, now, wait a minute, like he was doing All on the Family and Maud at the same time the music was happening and the movies was happening, were happening. And that was when it all kind of clicked into place. And I began to seriously research it and realize that this was an extraordinary period that could sustain an entire book.
0: Yeah. So you you take the title Rock Me on the Water from Jackson Brown's 1972 breakthrough album, Saturate, before using uh, Jackson yes. Brown. Uh, in some sense, I, I, I in thinking about it, I thought, though the song didn't come out till 1989, Don Henley writes The End of the Innocence. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and it sort of seems like, you take Rock Me on the Water as in some sense, the end of the innocence. Tell me a little bit about how you how you chose the title.
1: Well, Rock Me on the Water uh, actually finds Jackson Brown kind of poised between innocence and disillusion. Uh, you know um, I took Rock Me on the Water as a title originally uh, for a different uh, originally. Uh, What attracted me to Rock Me on the Water as a title was that it conveyed the openness and possibility of L.A. The song sounds like you are driving down the Santa uh, Monica Freeway, coming down the slope onto P.C.H., uh, you got some tunes probably on the A-track at that point. Um, uh, you know, sunshine glinting on the water. Um, I'm going to get me to the sea somehow, you know, is, is, is what he sings. And that was what originally drew me to the song. But as I got deeper into the book and deeper into the themes of the book, um, I felt an even deeper connection to the message of the song. Because as I write uh, in uh, a deeper connection between the message of the song and the message of the book, because the point of Rock Me on the Water uh, it, besides, first of all, it's got this great cast of characters and it tells this incredible story about all of the iconic popular culture that was being produced at the same time, literally blocks away in LA. I mean, a period in which Joni Mitchell, Linda Ronstadt, Jackson Brown, the Eagles, Norman Lear and Carol O'Connor, James L. Brooks and Mary Tyler Moore, Larry Gelbart and Alan Alda, not to mention Beatty and Nicholson and Jane Fonda, as well as. Both the generation of great directors born in the 20s and 30s, people like Robert Altman, Mike Nichols, Roman Polanski, Bob Rafelson, and the younger directors born in the 40s like Spielberg uh, and Scorsese and, and Lucas and De Palma were all producing great work. Um, part of the book, I mean, obviously a lot of the book is about how all of that came to be, but the underlying point is that I believe this is the moment where the 60s critique of American life becomes hammered into popular culture irreversibly, never to be dislodged, and ideas that were insurrectionary in the 60s, like greater suspicion of authority, changing relations between men and women, greater personal freedom, greater um, uh, tolerance of difference, all all of these ideas become embedded in popular culture. Popular culture becomes the bridge between those ideas which once seemed kind of, as I say, insurrectionary, and are now so much a part of our mental furniture that we can't even imagine there was a time before them. So all of this is happening in early 70s LA. Early 70s LA is the point at which uh, popular culture uh, is, I think, forever changed. If you look at the popular culture of the 60s, it does not reflect those ideas. I mean, the closest TV got to Vietnam was McHale's Navy uh, and Hogan's Heroes and Gomer Pyle. Jackson Brown wrote three songs, one on each of his first three albums, that directly grapple with this core question that I, I thought pop cult, that was at the essence of the great pop culture of the era, which was, what of the ideals of the 60s could be sustained in the stonier political soil of the 70s? And Rock Me on the Water on the first album is the most optimistic of the three. It's, oh, people look among you. It's there your hope must lie. He is still hoping that we are going to come together and change uh, the country for the better. By the next two albums, The Songs for Every Man and Before the Deluge, the balance is steadily, his optimism is, uh, I wouldn't say evaporating, but it's it's attenuating. Um, And um, uh, he is feeling more and more like millions of others, like fundamental change is not going to come. How do I find a way to, to maintain those ideals as part of my life, which I think ultimately he does and we can talk about
0: Yeah. You write two, two paragraphs. Uh, I always hesitate to read authors, their own writings, but, but you wrote it so brilliantly. You write the great art produced in the early seventies in LA was socially engaged, grappling with the changes and critiques of American life that hard that had rumbled through the societies in the 1960s. It was the moment that when conservatives lost the culture war, in their works, the artists of Los Angeles offered an alternative to the martial and material consensus of Nixon's America. So, flesh that out a little bit more, because that, right. that's that's really important. Yeah, and, and so that, you
1: know uh, I you know as I say the the book the book operates on two levels. At one, it is the story of how this incredible constellation of talent produced uh, this sunburst, really of. Uh, of iconic pop culture, but at, at, at the deeper level, it really is about how this was a hinge in American history. This was the moment where uh, the, the 60s critique of American life became part of our pop culture. And I think when, when conservatives often say, even when we win elections, we've lost the culture, I really think this was the moment when that happened. I mean, this was kind of the Gettysburg of, of, of the culture war in some sense. There's always new frontiers of the culture war. Um, but really, I think this was the moment when big ideas like suspicion of authority, like uh, greater, uh, uh, greater personal freedom, greater, more assertive roles for women, uh, a beginning of a process, which is obviously still ongoing and was imperfect then, of greater inclusion of uh, racial minorities uh, and, and more tolerance of, 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 of you know, sexual orientation and sexual preference. Um, so I think uh, th- th- this was a, this was a, a, a decisive uh, hinge point and what's striking about it uh, and really relevant to where we are today is that these ideas were basically triumphing in the popular culture, precisely as Nixon was winning two elections by mobilizing the voters most uneasy about the changes that the sixties had unleashed. Um, you know, that was the essence of his silent majority. It was the voters who most, uh, felt themselves unmoored by the ways the society was changing. I mean, I write that, you know, all in the family, essentially was Archie Bunker week by week, his terms of surrender to the new cultural and social norms and Nixon, uh, showed that it was still a political majority uh, of voters that were uh, unnerved by the way the society is changing. And what happened over the next 20 years wasn't that the 60s left necessarily won all the elections by any means. Obviously, Reagan and and Bush dominated the 80s. But these cultural ideas took root anyway, uh, despite the rights political uh, success. Um, and, and I think that is really uh, uh, a function of them becoming embedded in the popular culture and thus embedded in the way we live. And I, and I think we're in something like a position like that today. I mean, Trump has obviously shown there's a lot of oomph, although not, not a national majority either time, in uh, mobilizing and energizing the voters who don't like the way the country is changing demographically, culturally, uh, and socially. Uh, But I think if you look at uh, the Grammys, if you look at the pop culture that is that is riveting younger generations, I think that gives you an idea that in 2030, America is going to be incredibly tolerant of a broad range of difference of of changes uh, that the Trump coalition uh, doesn't like. Again, doesn't mean that the left is going to win all the elections. It does mean that the way we live is going to change.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to think about how what happened then was sort of a a breakout from the the optimism, pure optimism of the 60s. You write that the most memorable works in the early 70s emerged from a collision of the 60s optimism with the mounting cynicism and pessimism of the 70s. But with all the exposure of the hypocrisy and inequality, they still clung to the hope that society could change for the better. And so, and we'll talk about Jackson Brown and them in a few minutes. But do you think we still have youth clinging to the hope that society can change for the better in our current times? is, is, is you see that same sort of resolute optimism, notwithstanding the exposure of the hypocrisies in our society? Yes,
1: yes, I do. I mean, I think, I think that, you know, as, as you, as you have continued to find the uh, very pertinent entrenching quotes from the book, um, uh, I do think that the great art of the early seventies really was electrified by the collision, uh, between the, um, the ideals of the sixties, the, the, the thought that, you know, you know, it's almost like the Andy Rooney, let's go put on a show, you know, we can change this country for the better, um, uh, and and part of that would be by if we expose its sins, people of good faith will want to expiate them, and you know, kind of kind of go in a different direction. Uh, and and as we'll talk about in a minute, that erodes over time as a, because as in kind of the grinding realities of the '70s. And by and I think that really um, by the middle of the '70s, the the top, the public appetite for relitigating the arguments of the '60s. Uh, significantly diminishes and you see popular entertainment moving in different directions. But today, I think without a question, I think millennials and even more Gen Z believe they are going to change the world. I mean, I think there's a lot of frustration uh, about all the barriers they are facing uh, in, in trying, you know, uh, to uh, impart their values uh, on on the society. But look, by 2024, millennials and Z combined will be uh, a large, the people born after 1981, which are millennials and Z, will be a larger share of the eligible voters than the people born before 64, which are the baby boom, uh, the silent generation, and, and anybody uh, left from the, old, the greatest generation. Uh, and so inexorably, they, they you know millennials and Generation Z will be putting their stamp on politics. As I say in the book, I think they are putting their stamp on culture first. And you can see the changes in culture that they are bringing. I think that foreshadows changes in the way that we live, what it does to the political balance of power remains to be seen.
0: Yeah. Uh, and the thing that struck me in the, so the book has four pillars, music, television, movies, and politics. Yeah. So taking a deep dive into each and in, in, in music, you, you talk about, and you've just mentioned it in passing the, the Laurel Canyon, um, Crew, the, the, it's the Ooh. Eagles, Joni Mitchell, Ronstadt, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, um, that that whole crew. And um, the, as I said, you mentioned, but the, take a little deeper dive with us into what was their politics in the Vietnam Watergate sense, and their personal developmental politics. Dylan, Dylan writes. Not long after that, the song Everything is Broken. Seems like every time you stop and turn around, something else just hits the ground. Mm -hmm. Joni Mitchell writes in in California, um, sitting in a park in Paris, France, reading the news, it sure looks bad. They won't give peace a chance. That was just a dream some of us had. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's something going on there. There's this angst that that, that, that comes out.
1: As, as we'll discuss, the the, the the current in the music is a little different than in the uh, TV and the television. Um, I think that the essence of the, of the of it, to the extent there was a central cultural message uh, in the music uh, from, from, from the California artists, it was very much Joni Mitchell's uh, line in Woodstock, um, you know, uh, that we have to get back to the garden. Um, There was a sense, you know, uh, you could. I I kind of look at the graduate as as um, uh, a progenitor or or a a precedent for a lot of the message from the music, which was that we had to find in a more authentic way of living. That what we were being presented by older generations was a plastic, you know, plastics, uh, a plastic way of living that measured success by accumulation and conformity. Um, and so much of the, uh, you know, not all of the artists had a consistent, um, uh, a consistent message in the same way that the that the TV shows and 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 the movies did. But to the extent they did, it was really about finding greater meaning in life than those conventional markers of success in the Nixon era. So. Uh, and, and some of that could be going on the road. I mean, you know, take it easy uh, uh, with Jackson Brown and the Eagles is I'm um, running down the road. It's kind of running away. Sometimes it's staying in one place. It's, it's Graham Nash seeing our house is a very, very fine house, uh, or even earlier than that, Brian Wilson wouldn't it be nice? Uh, which is not kind of the typical, it was not the initial uh, Carol King doesn't anybody stay in one place anymore. Um, but whether it was running or staying, it was about finding a more authentic and deeper way to live. I think that was the core uh, message of the, um, uh, of the music that was being produced at, at the time. So it was in one sense, less overtly political. Obviously there are songs like Ohio uh, from Neil Young that are a direct response to the Kent state killings. And there are lines, like you mentioned from Joni Mitchell, but Joni Mitchell, you know, the real kind of cultural message of Joni Mitchell was like trying to get in touch with your feelings and, Understand what mattered to you, and balancing, in her case, independence as a woman versus uh, all of the the romances that she engaged in—Graham Nash, Warren Beatty, Jackson Brown, uh, David Crosby—but um, I, I do think the core of it was, uh, you know, when she said, "We have to get back to the garden." Uh, it, it's it's that idea. It, it's that we have to find a more authentic way of living than our parents have left us. Um, and that was where I think the music fit into uh, the cultural reconsideration and critique that emerged out of the 60s. Yeah,
0: I, and I think, I, I, I don't disagree with that at all. Um, but I suppose the um, Pretender, Ooh. the Jackson Brown 1976 album, Right. Um, he says, "I want to know what became of the changes we waited for, the, for love to bring. Were they only the fitful dreams of some greater awakening, say a prayer for the pretender who started out so young and strong only to surrender right so right so he and yeah, he
1: talks we talk about that at great length in the book i mean he's, he has some great insights on his own work. Well, as I say, Jackson Brown um, was kind of uh, unique in that he steadily gra- he grappled directly with the questions." Uh, that I just mentioned about kind of a, finding a more authentic way to live and balancing the advantages of the sexual revolution with the the costs in terms of impermanence and, and instability. I and mean, he writes, you know, kind of wise beyond his years songs about personal relationships, but he also, more than most other artists, deals directly with this broader question of, okay, what, what is going to, are we going to change society? Is this going to become a more equal, more generous, uh, more humane uh, country? And as I mentioned, he wrote one song really on each of his first four albums that dealt directly with this. The first one is rock me on the water, as we said, and that's, Oh, people look among you there. Your hope must lie. That is the most optimistic. Um, It's late. But it's not too late. It's, it's really a call to arms. If you listen to the song 50 years later, I mean, it's basically saying we can still do this. You know, sort of that Andy Rooney. Let's go put on a play with Judy Garland. By the second album, the title song is for every man and uh, every man is his metaphor for the communal movements of the 1960s. And he's now waiting for every man. Um, and he allows on the song that by waiting for every man, he may be left in a beautiful phrase holding sand—in other words, nothing—but um, that um, uh, he's still waiting. Others may be giving up; he's still waiting. I'm waiting here for every man. Um,
0: the right. third at hour, the same—just the, the, interrupt at the, at the yeah. same time that he's waiting for every man. Uh, David Crosby is sailing away on his wooden ship. Yes. Right, yeah,
1: Exactly. And, 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 and that for every man is a response to wooden ships, because David, David Crosby would say, when everything goes to hell, you know, nuclear war, society collapse, I'm just going to sail away. And Jackson Brown would say to him, well, that's all well and good, but what if everybody can't afford a boat? And so for every man is really that, that story uh, of, well, what about, you know, what, what's going to happen to all of us? By the time you get to the third album, which I I think in many ways is his masterpiece album, Late for the Sky, which is the one that comes out in 1974 and which I write about the most, um, you get to the final song is Before the Deluge. And this is a uh, cinematic uh, uh, kind of uh, melange of biblical and environmental doom. Uh, And by now, he sees very little possibility uh, for um, restoration or revival uh, and uh, you know, his generation uh, uh, has basically traded its idealism for the the glitter and the rouge, and they are going to be swept away like everyone else before the deluge. And then you mentioned, okay, a few years later, suffering the personal tragedy of his wife committing suicide, um, uh, Phyllis Major, he records The Pretender and, you know, basically asks, were... The, the hopes of some greater awakening, only fitful dreams. That's, you know, is that all, is that all it was? Um, but what I note in the book was that, and that, that may have been the low point in kind of uh, the trajectory of his view uh, about the possibility of change. Um, what I note in the book is that as he goes on in his life and his career, like millions of other people who had, who had hoped for fundamental change in the 1960s, he found a way to look forward more often than he looked back. And he found a way to both be productive in his professional life and his personal life, um, uh, but also uh, to find causes that he cared about and contributed to. So, uh, you know, as he said, um, as he said to me, uh, and we talk about, you know, he talks about in the book, you know in these songs he's not trying to bury the 60s he's trying to find the part of that idealism that exists in all of us and that we essentially must find a way to sustain
0: yeah and you asked him i remember reading this you asked him sort of essentially what was the most dynamic when would be the most yeah. uh, important tell, tell tell us like q and a where he says yeah. now
1: now right. no no i asked i asked i asked him what was the most creative period he'd ever been part of uh in LA and he said last night and I get that you know that there that there is a process there's a perennial process of reinvention um and in fact when he was just interviewed uh uh, for a CBS piece uh, about the book uh they asked him and he said well I kind of resist the idea that that early 70s was my most creative period, because obviously I've been making music a long time since then. But my point is not that that was the most creative period for him or for any other individual artist, though it may have been. But really, it was the cumulative. It was the collective uh, heights. It was, I think, the, the unique moment when the music, the movies, and the television we're all firing on all cylinders. We're all producing pathbreaking work uh, that was really changing uh, the, uh, the kind of the, the fundamental contours of popular culture, and it was all happening for the same reason: because all of these industries were responding to the growing economic power of the baby boom, who were you know this enormous generation, and they were changing culture before they changed politics.
0: Yeah. So let, let's pivot to pillar two, which is is television as much as I'd love to continue to talk about Jackson Brown, because the great thing about this book, um, especially for those who lived in this period, but even those who didn't is you then go back and listen to the music or watch the movies or or the TV shows. And I I, I went back and started listening to his album, Standing in the Breach, the 2014 um, uh, album. And, and, And he says, he sings in the song, If I Could Be Anywhere, said, if I could be anywhere and change things, it would have to be now. Exactly yeah. to exactly to yeah. your point. Yeah. So, so um, television, I think, is the most revolutionary pillar. Revolutionized. Of, yeah. Revolutionized peer, pillar yeah. of your of your four book yeah. of the, of the four pillars of your book. And tell us if you would, as we roll into the early seventies, television, and I was watching it at the time, was the Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres and Bonanza yeah. and, and yeah. Gunsmoke. You know the these banal comedies um, celebrating the wisdom of, of uh, rural life, the simple wisdom of rural yeah. life. And then and all of a sudden there's an explosion.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: so I think the one exception is the Smothers Brothers comedy hour um, before the explosion. Mm-hmm. And you can talk about Smothers Brothers if you want to, but tell us about this explosion that occurs in, in the 1970s, which is, you know, the, the pillar of, of the TV part of your book? Yeah.
1: Well, I, you know, certainly in the 1960s, the, the dominant, overwhelming impulse on television, virtually unchallenged, was to look away from everything that was happening around it. You know, as I say uh, in the book, uh, Walter Cronkite would spend half an hour uh, reporting on and showing Americans all of the tensions and fissures and pressures that were opening uh, in our society through the 1960s. And then the CBS primetime would spend the next three and a half hours at that point trying to erase it from their minds. And the same was true on NBC and ABC, although ABC was was a little different because there were only three networks and shows had to maintain such a huge audience in order to stay on the air. I mean, you could be canceled if a little less than a third of the country was watching you. Um, uh, What developed was a theory of the least objectionable program, which meant that it had to be kind of broadly acceptable, to everyone, which in practice gave a veto uh, to the most culturally conservative rural parts of the country, and so you, as you say, Michael, you got this kind of steady, especially off the CBS um, assembly line under James T. Aubrey, their president in the '60s. You got this assembly line of shows that celebrated uh, the virtues of rural life, you know, Beverly Hillbillies and Petticoat Junction and Green Acres and the westerns and and shows with Lucy and uh, Doris Day. I mean, if you look at what was on the air the night of Kent State, it was still Gunsmoke. Uh, And Andy Griffith and Lucille Ball and Doris Day. Um, But as the decade went on, and again, as you have this uh, demographic change of this enormous generation that's rising, there began to be more pressure, interestingly, from the business side at CBS, that said, yeah, we have the most people overall. We're dominating in the ratings, but NBC and ABC are, to some extent, are starting to get better rates on their advertising because they're convincing advertisers they have better viewers, urban viewers, younger viewers, more affluent viewers. Um, And so uh, that was bubbling up. And CBS uh, promoted a guy named Robert Wood to become their president in 1969. And Robert Wood was a very unlikely revolutionary. He was a USC graduate, a football fan. He came out of KNXT in LA, which became the model for the newsroom on Mary Tyler Moore. Jerry Dumphy became the model for Ted Baxter. Um, He was a Nixon fan. He was a Reagan fan. He hated the student demonstrators. And soon after he got to the top job at CBS, he canceled the Smothers Brothers show, which was really the first attempt uh, I think by CBS and arguably by any of the networks to tap into the emerging uh, youth culture. But even though he canceled the Smothers Brothers show, he realized coming out of uh, his LA background and working with what were called the O&O stations, the owned and operated stations in the big cities, he realized that something had to change, That they that they were in fact Kind of uh, at risk of u- losing younger and urban viewers by feeding them uh, kind of an endless diet of the Clampets and Gomer Pile. Um, and in fact, in one meeting, uh, he, he talks about his fear that they were losing the younger generation to edgier movies like Easy Rider. So you can see how these things start to intersect. So he is looking for something that will modernize the network, that will give it a more contemporary feel, that will attach it to what's happening around it. So enter through door number two, Norman Lear, you know, and we are so accustomed to thinking of Norman Lear as the genius who transformed television, which in many ways he was, uh, that we forget that he was also an unlikely revolutionary. I mean, Norman Lear had been in television since television started. He was roughly Parallel in age to Robert Wood, but he had worked for like Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin, Martha Ray, uh, Jack Haley. Uh, when he went into business with the great Bud Yorkin, who was a great director, I mean, they did specials. They, they did The Andy Williams Show. Uh, they did Come Blow Your Horn, the night they rated Minsky's. Uh, there was very little in their work that said that these were people who had like a burning desire to comment. On American society, even Divorce American Style, which may be the one movie of, of any of their work that hints at what might be coming, even that is overrun by slapstick for big, big chunks of it. But Yorkin had seen and other sources had seen a British TV show called The Death Through His Part, and it just detonated in Lear because it was the story of the bigoted father and the liberal son-in-law reminded him of his own father and his own relationship with his father, Herman. And in his mid forties, he found a voice that was more urgent and immediate and and insistent than he ever had before. And he developed all the family and and ABC said no. Michael Eisner, by the way, was the film projector for one of the screenings for the ABC executives when they turned it down twice. Um, But through Yorkin and his agent, they got it to CBS. And Robert Wood, though ambivalent, recognized this was his conversation starter and he put it on the air in January, 1971 and nothing was ever the same again in television.
0: Right. So you you ha- you write, um, and w- I want you to flesh out because a lot of our listening audience will not recognize these shows in the same way that we can talk about them in, in shorthand version, having lived them. You write, All in the Family, Mary Tyler Moore, MASH, became landmarks not only because of their excellence, but also because of their relevance. After years in which television networks had deliberately, even defiantly, ignored the fissures in American life opening them around them, they, more than any predecessor, finally connected the medium to the moment. Yeah. So uh, so, talk, so, talk about the, the... the So All the Family is the, is the first one. Archie Bunker, uh, iconic longshoreman... Racist and his Rob Reiner liberal son and, and son in law, yeah. son-in-law, but but that was just that was really step one because then yeah. you had this evolution of great shows that that right. that were the proje- progeny of them.
1: All in the Family was the bulldozer. Mary Tyler Moore actually went on the air four months before, or three or four months before All in the Family. But All in the Family was the bulldozer that uh, really broke down the wall that had been built much the same way as we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, graduate. Easy Rider, Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, Easy Rider broke down the wall between Hollywood and contemporary America. All in the Family was the bulldozer that shattered uh, this kind of uh, what uh, hayseed, hay, you know, hayseed barrier that the CBS. Had constructed between them and everything that was happening around them, and once that barrier was down uh, this this tremendous wave of great television came through uh, that was more connected to what was happening uh, in the society and, and certainly two the other two I think really landmark shows of this period uh, were Mary Tyler Moore and Mash there were others there was Maud. Uh, which was a spin-off from All in the Family about Edith's liberal cousin. There was Sanford and Son, which gave more prominence to uh, you know, African-American stars. Later after that, The Jeffersons and Good Times, uh, although Good Times became a source of enormous friction uh, between Lear and the Black community. Um, uh, also Chico and the Man for a while, which brought Freddie Prinze as an Hispanic star onto television. But really at, at the upper level of, of shows that are considered among the greatest of all time, the Trinity is Mary Tyler Moore, MASH, and, and All in the Family. And Mary Tyler Moore obviously brings to TV uh, all of the debates about the changing role of women. Uh, it's, very, it's a very different show, and it's in its feel and its aesthetic, then all in the family, all in the family really was a bulldozer. I mean, you are locked. It's essentially the entire generation gap, all this cultural conflict of the sixties playing out in a single living room and it can get pretty intense. I mean, you kind of want to get out at times. Mary Tyler Moore is much gentler. It's a, it's a, it's a character study. The changes are evolutionary. You know, they don't bang a loud gong, but that moment when Mary Tyler Moore, Mary Richards asks, Lou, Lou Grant for a raise, and he says you didn't get it because the last guy was a man. You know, uh, it was more important that he got the money because he was a man. Um, you know, that is a landmark moment that that again is taking what is happening around it and putting it in uh, uh, television, making the, the TV uh, the, you know breaking down the wall between the TV and the world outside. I mean, All in the Family referred to events that were happening. Nixon was president uh, in, in All in the Family. I mean, I'm not sure that in at Mayberry RFD, JFK, was president, you know, I mean, you didn't, it wasn't that, and then obviously MASH is in some ways the most remarkable of all, because even though it's set in Korea, it is clearly a a critique and a satire of America in Vietnam, and this show is going on the air while America is, Viet- is in Vietnam, uh, and it is essentially uh, lampooning the army, lampooning the futility of war, Um, Even as we are at war. So through the opening that all in the family created ideas that TV had done their best to stay 180 degrees away from suddenly they're in your living room. On and at one point, point, as I write about in the year that I write about, 1974, they are all there together, all in the family: Mary Tyler Moore, MASH, along with Bob Newhart and Carol Burnett, for one season, are all together. Some people call that the greatest night in television history. You know, others might look at Seinfeld and Friends, but uh, that th- those shows coming one after the other after the other, I think, really underscored the world how the television world had been turned upside down from avoiding what was happening in society to kind of using it as their, as their kindling.
0: Yeah. The, as you said, the connected the medium to the moment you were yeah. watching on television, a fictionalized version of what was going on in real life. You could watch all in the family and understand what was going on in racial terms uh, uh, as easily as if you read the, the New York times, you could watch an episode of mash and understand what the tensions were in the Vietnam War as easily as if you read the Washington Post. It, it was a remarkable, a remarkable revolution. I thought. How fast it happened. Right. I mean, and,
1: and, you know, again, if you think about it, Robert Wood would not have been your pick to be the guy who opened this door. I mean, he was, he was not really that interested in the creative side. He didn't see a mission in television. He didn't have a mission. He saw TV as a way to sell cars. Um, but the, 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 the necessity of speaking to a different audience uh, ultimately pulled him in the direction of enabling what, what is it, just a, a, an incredible transformation of the medium. And again, is, is a reminder that all of these industries are responding to the same underlying force, uh, the, the growing presence and buying power of the baby boom, which was changing culture before they changed politics um, and, 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 and helping to spark. As we'll talk about in movies, uh, you know, just really some of the iconic pop culture of the 20th century uh, in, in this very few year period.
0: Yeah, I, I won't forgive him for canceling the Smothers Brothers, which was my favorite show of of of, of that of that of that era. Mm-hmm. I think. Can I make
1: one point about the Smothers Brothers? Was all sure. Versus the these other shows, um, the Smothers Brothers picked a side in the generation gap, right? I mean, they were they were un, unequivocally part of the battering ram of youth. That were trying to overthrow the plastic world they were inheriting uh, from 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 their parents. All the family is more complex. Yes, it's true that um, Archie essentially loses every argument to the smart younger person, the smart black person, uh, the, the gay person. I mean, in the, you know, as I say in the book, I mean, All in the Family is really recording the terms of surrender for the older generation week by week to the new cultural realities that the baby boom is bringing forth. But Archie is not a patsy. You know, my father was a blue collar electrician from, from Queens and he watched All in the Family because he liked Archie and he, he thought Archie gave as good as he got. And Norman Lear, you know, allowed both sides to kind of see themselves in this uh, contest in a way that really wasn't true in the Smothers Brothers. And that, I think, gave him a, a obviously gave him a bigger audience, uh, but it gave him kind of a, a, a wider base. It's like, you know, one of these, uh, uh, you know, a lamp or something, an outdoor lamp. It's harder to knock over because the base was wider. Um, and so Lear had kind of political defense that, uh, the Smothers Brothers didn't, because Lear was talking to everybody. And what's what's also strange about All in the Family is that there was essentially no input on All in the Family from the younger generations. I mean, Rob Reiner was it. I mean, you know, he was pulling writers out of the Catskills and, and people who had directed at the very dawn of television. It was the older generation that was sympathetic uh, to these, the, this sort of um, new vision of America, this criticism of America that was emerging out of the younger generation, it was the older generation telling the story. Uh, you know, I, I said he, he, you know, he kind of he kind of made the case of the Woodstock generation in the language of the Catskills. Uh, right. I say that it's approximately those words in the book, um, and uh, I think that made All in the Family more accessible to more people than than the Smothers Brothers were.
0: fair, fair enough, fair enough. But I still loved. David Steinberg yes. and uh, and um, also other, the bands
1: they had yeah. I mean that's the first time that you know kind of you know Simon and Garfunkel and Buffalo Springfield and the Beatles gave them videos to to yeah. run on on uh, for Hey Jude I mean it's it's incredible
0: yeah so third pillar is 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 film and we've touched upon it some because all these things are interrelated I'm trying to take them as pillars yeah. but they're yeah. not four corners of a of a table they are all inter, intertwined. But you, you, you mentioned earlier, there is a displacement that, that is taking place of the older directors who still had many years of good films to come after the, this early 1970s. But you had Brian De Palmer and Martin Scorsese yeah. and George yeah. Lucas and, and them. And, 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 um, y- you write that, um, there was a period in which, cr- sufficient cracks emerged in the foundation of the movie industry that allowed these new directors to break in. You had new guys, new ideas, new writers, new everything. And, and I suppose is best exemplified in movies like Chinatown and, and shampoo and, and, and Nashville and maybe godfather 2 which won yeah. the academy award yeah. but right. talk about this transition because if television is a revolution in a sense television uh movies is still a little bit more evolutionary yeah. but you see what's coming and then it comes right
1: so i mean so for most of the 60s Movies had the same strategy as TV, which was to get as far away as they could from any of the changes happening around them. And you get Mary Poppins and Sound of Music and My Fair Lady and The Longest Day. The h- musicals, historical epics, sword and sandal epics earlier in the earlier in the decade, all you know, kind of the, the biblical uh, movies, very little that touched on any of the new dynamics in American life. Yes, there's The Apartment in 1960, there's The Venturian Candidate, there's Dr. Strangelove, but these are really the exceptions. I mean, the big movies, like the big TV shows, did their best to act as though, you know, not, you know nothing to see here, nothing is happening out there in the world. Um, and they they start having, you know, serious problems with their audience. Uh, they, their, their, their receipts are going down. The late 60s are a terrible time uh, for the movie industries, they're, they're losing enormous amounts of money. I remember talking to uh, one one uh, person who was an agent then, and later uh, an executive who talked about going to Warner Brothers in 1967. And it was like a bomb went off. You know, it was like this giant lot, and there was nobody uh, there was nobody on it. Um, the the curve begins to bend in 1967, and you get two movies, landmark movies, uh, The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde, uh, that each in their own way, begin to respond to uh, the changes that are going on in American society. The Graduate, obviously, most directly, but Bonnie and Clyde is a story about the 60s told through the guise of, of the 30s. It's, it's the excitement of breaking, it's outlaw, it's breaking away, it's breaking out of convention, it's, you know, um, uh, celebrating uh, that kind of what, what was theoretically antisocial uh, behavior. Um, and, and, and Beatty and Dunaway are just these incredibly glamorous figures, even after those two movies. I mean, it's not like, unlike TV, as you say, Hollywood doesn't turn on a dime. I mean, it continues mostly to churn out, uh, you know, kind of formulaic stuff that is very unconnected to the times. And the real irreversible turning point is 1969 with the release of Easy Rider that shows, which is kind of like a Corman-esque a road movie, Roger Corman, you know, motorcycle movie on one level and another level it's kind of like Bonnie and Clyde where the the, desti- the, the, the journey is more important than the destination. It's just about breaking out of convention. Uh, and it shows that there's an enormous youth audience that will um, respond to this. And so what really happens over the next several years in the studios through the early seventies is they trade money for control. They don't have a lot of money to give to filmmakers. So they give them more power and more control than they historically had offered. And so you see initially through that, Michael, it's the older generation, right? It's Bob Rafelson uh, and, um, uh, and then Polanski with, with um, Chinatown, but Bob Rafelson with Five Easy Pieces and Alan Pakula with Clute and um, uh, the Parallax View, uh, Sam Peckinpah, uh, you know. You know uh, and so you see the older generation, Mike Nichols, Carnal Knowledge, uh, that begins to make uh, Robert Altman with MASH and everything that comes after that. The older generation begins to make movies that in, in some ways it's an act of deconstruction. I mean, they kind of take apart the myths of, uh, that ho- of American life that Hollywood had probably done more as much as anyone else To erect in the first place, uh, I think of Little Big Man by Arthur Penn, starring Dustin Hoffman, uh, which is which is a western uh, uh, that is a western that is a sustained act of deconstruction of other westerns. Um, uh, Or, for that matter, Robert Altman's version of The Long Goodbye, which is like a takedown of uh, you know the private eye in film noir movies. Um, So, in all of these ways, you see the older generation start to, I think, produce probably the greatest concentrated burst of socially aware filmmaking ever. Uh, I'm thinking in the early 40s, there's How Green Was My Valley, Uh, there are some kind of, there's some the Preston Sturgis, uh, Sullivan's Travels, Uh, but I think you'd have to say the early 70s is the most concentrated period of socially aware, socially critique filmmaking, and what's really striking about this is that when, and, 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 and the films that reflect through the prism of the older generation, a lot of the critique of America that's emerging from the the 60s movements. What's really historically striking about this is that when the first baby boomers themselves enter the picture in the early 1970s, Spielberg, Scorsese, um, uh, de Palma, uh, George Lucas, above all, um, they are not really that interested in telling these, uh, these stories with a sharp, social critique edge Coppola who is kind of in between I think he was born in 39 um he you know kind of he's doing the godfather so he's kind of got more of a foot in the in the older camp but when you get to Spielberg and and the others Lucas does American graffiti and he you know which is set in 1962 and 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 kind of uh celebrates the America that existed before all of the changes of the 60s. And he goes to Modesto where he was from and gives a speech in which he says what becomes, I think, the mission statement of of the next generation. Uh, I was tired of going to movies where I felt worse coming out of the theater than I did when I went in. And um, so while Scorsese does Taxi Driver with Paul Schrader, which certainly hangs in there with any of of the movies filmed by the older generation, And while the older generation continues to produce important, good movies, I mean, obviously Network, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is still to come, Coming Home is still to come, Reds is still to come. By and large, the balance of power in Hollywood shifts to the directors born in the 40s. And as it does, it returns to kind of more traditional Hollywood notions that the idea of movies is to thrill you, not to challenge you or enlighten you. So you get Jaws and you get Star Wars and you get Indiana Jones, great movies but very different in their intent than Chinatown or
0: Nashville. Yeah, but but Chinatown, which I have to tell you, I in preparing for this, I decided to to rewatch, mm. and and then in the aftermath of the Atlanta spa killings, it, it, it's a little bit hard to watch mm. um, Chinatown, and you know the, the the movie ends, give it up, Jake. It's Chinatown, right. which uh, you know is fairly directly anti Asian, um, well, anti corruption. The, the, Asian corruption linkage sort of line.
1: The, the movie has kind of anti-Asian stereotypes in it.
0: Yeah. But I wouldn't
1: say forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown is part of that. Um, Chinatown is my favorite movie of the era. I will I will go out on a limb and and say that. Even though it ended up losing to Godfather Part Two for most of the Academy Awards, except for Robert Town's screenplay. Um, I think Nashville, as, as I write about in the book, is the most emblematic movie of the era. It is the one, it is kind of, as I say, the Moby Dick of the era, because it is the one movie that tries to stuff into it all of the major themes of early 1970s cinema and wrestle it to some kind of conclusion, which it does, it points brilliantly. At other points, it's a little more of a, of a kind of a mishmash. But Chinatown seems to me, the, in some ways, the perfect movies of the early 70s because the core message of Chinatown is you don't know as much as you think you know. Uh, and I believe, above all, that is what Americans were learning in the era of the Pentagon Papers and Watergate and the IT&T scandal and this fundamental change in how we looked at uh, authority figures and um, uh, institutions uh, in our society. Uh, you know, uh, no across who is the father of uh, Faye Dunaway's Evelyn uh, Mulray um, and is the villain who sets the whole story in motion, says to Jack Nicholson's uh, detective at one point, you may think you do, but you have no idea what you were dealing with. And I think that is what made the movie so resonant at the time is that literally millions of Americans were coming to the same conclusion as all of these... Uh, governmental misdeeds were revealed. One of the reviews, as as you saw in the book, called it Watergate with real water. So when when he says at the end, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown, he's talking about the inscrutability, the wheels within wheels uh, of power, and that we think we know how society runs. We think we have our hand on the buzzer because we get to vote every two years. But in fact, we have no idea who's really running things. You know, the parallax view has a much more um, heavy-handed, hit-you-over-the-head version of that, with this kind of shadowy company that is ordering assassinations uh, on behalf of kind of some uh, cabal. Uh, But I think Chinatown, because it's so personal, and the that, you know, it, 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 the, the, the betrayals are both personal and political. The, the, you know, I won't give it away for people who haven't, who haven't seen it. Um, that it really, to me, I thought, captured that strain of criticism more powerfully than any other movie in that era, even more than The Godfather and Godfather 2, which, which is very similar uh, in its kind of thematic message. Uh, And Godfather is a better movie than Chinatown. But I'm going to go with Chinatown over Godfather too, even though the Academy went the other way.
0: So before we turn to politics, and we're going to run out of time, it's always the case on my interviews is that I lose track of time because I'm so interested in our our conversation. One thing you you said once, which I'd like you to elaborate on, which I didn't sort of get when I read the book um, initially, is you say that Chinatown, which is a – film noir, sort of classic corruption, the the Mm -hmm. diversion of water in in L.A. It's the original sin of L.A. is a bookend to shampoo, which is Warren Beatty's. He's a a hair cutter who's having a little affair after the after the next. But you said these two movies sort of in some sense epitomize what life in 1974. And these movies sort of relate in some sense to what Jackson Brown is singing about in, in my estimation. So, can you flesh that out a bit? Sure.
1: Uh, You know, both Chinatown, first of all, as I talk about in the book, Shampoo was filmed immediately after Chinatown. They were both written by Robert Town, uh, Robert Town writing Shampoo in collaboration with Warren Beatty. In fact, they finished the script for Shampoo. Uh, in Christmas period 1973 during a break in the filming of Chinatown before it was finished in 1974 and several key cast members including uh, the great um, uh, costume designer Anthea Silbert went directly and town went directly from Chinatown uh, to Shampoo and both of them reach back I think into LA history go to an earlier point in LA history uh, to dramatize what they see as the rot and corruption of America in 1974 in Nixon's America. Shampoo uh, is set on election eve, 19, uh, 1968. So what's striking about Shampoo is that it's recording Nixon's ascent precisely as he is falling right? I mean, they are, you know, they are, the Watergate hearings are, are, you know, uh, uh, have happened. Uh, the House is moving toward impeachment. Uh, and, and Beatty and Hal Ashby, the director in town, are, are, are setting their story uh, of Nixon's ascent um, uh, uh, precisely at the moment that he is, that he, that, is, that his career is coming to an end. And in Shampoo, the story is essentially of, amid all of the sexual hijinks, It's about the inability to make a real connection endless personal betrayal. Everybody is sleeping with somebody they shouldn't be. Um, everybody is kind of, um, what, leveraging their personal, you know, looking for what they can get out of their personal relationships. Um, you know, uh, Beatty uh, is, uh, uh, you know, having multiple affairs. The woman who truly loves is sleeping with Julie Christie, is sleeping with Jack Warden for his money. Uh, and at the end of the movie, well, I, I Can I give away, should I give away the end of the movie? I mean,
0: I I think you have to, in a sense, because this is, this is the denouement of the whole. Right. I mean, at the end of the
1: movie, at the end of, of shampoo, he is left in the same position as Jack Nicholson at the end of Chinatown. It's exactly the same. It, 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 he, the woman he loves is forever gone to him. Um, It's set the shampoo ends the morning after Nixon's victory. And Basically, what Beatty shows is that both the, the hopes of getting back to the garden as I talked about before, that that way of living more authentically that's gone, the hope of political transformation that's gone um, and it is this kind of crushing moment like the end of Chinatown where you you realize that um, the good guys aren't always going to win and that corruption can win and that repression. Uh, can win, and, and it's that same kind of um, story progress, You know, it's the same kind of progression that Jackson Brown is going through on these first three and four albums. Um, uh, it is, uh, it is really a moment of. Uh, as, a, as why I say it's a bookend of Chinatown. Chinatown is dark and labyrinthine and kind of total film noir. Shampoo is open and sunny and funny and you know, kind of sexual hijinks. Um, But it ends in the same place, kind of social and personal disillusionment that reflects the waning belief in the possibility of fundamentally transforming the society that it existed in the 60s. It is the same progression I talk about uh, in in Jackson Brown's uh, music. Um, And so to me, it's kind of under you you lose, you can lose yourself in the brilliant surfaces that Beatty shows you of Beverly Hills, and you can lose this underlying uh, message, but it is again, in the same place uh, as, as Chinatown, as Jackson Brown, as so much else of what is, of what is being produced at this time.
0: Yeah. uh, It's the fitful dreams of some greater awakening. Yeah, it is. It's the morning after that is exactly what it is. Yeah, exactly. So, We don't have much time, and and I've left for last something which is, you know, deeply important, uh, obviously, which is the politics of the era. You know, uh, uh, George Harrison saying it's been a long, cold, lonely winter, um, and this is sort of what this period was like, but you did have these little bright spots with in for, for my politics of Jerry Brown and Tom Hayden yeah. and Jane Fonda, and talk a little bit, if you can, about what was it that was going on there in LA, which wasn't happening. I mean, Nixon wins 49 states. 49 states. Um,
1: well, as, as I say, you know, as I said to you before, and I think you read, uh, I think the core question that popular culture was grappling with in, in this era was what from the idealism of the 60s could be sustained. In what was clearly the stonier political soil of the 70s. And that's the question we begin to see answered in politics itself as well in 1974. Jerry Brown is a little older than the baby boomers, born in uh, you know, born in the late 30s. But because he goes to seminary for three years, he comes out and finishes his education and, and begins his career immersed. In uh, uh, As the kind of civil rights movement was unfolding, uh, he goes down to the South, uh, you know, to try to register voters. He volunteers with Cesar Chavez. His first political involvement uh, is trying to elect a, a slate of anti-war delegates to the 1968 Democratic Convention, at the same time that his father, Pat Brown, the former governor, was still all the way with LBJ. I mean, you know, the, again, like all in the family, it's the generation gap in one living room. Um, And uh, Brown begins, I think, along with Gary Hart, who's elected that same year, really is the first mainstream politician to, to begin to bring some of this same 60s critique that's transforming the pop culture into actual electoral politics. He's talking about limits. He's talking about environmentalism. He's talking about the need uh, for more representation of uh, racial minorities and women uh, in government. And uh, if you, as, you, as you'll read in the book, the 1974 Democratic primary is like a version of All in the Family that's happening on the campaign trail. It is, it is Jerry Brown, uh, although literally, he is not literally a baby boomer, but it is Jerry Brown against the older generation, Joe Alioto and Robert Moretti, both accomplished, won the mayor of San Francisco, won the speaker of the state house, who look at him and just cannot fathom what he's talking about, you know, and they just, they just look at him as a flake. I mean, it is, it's Mike and Archie, like just listening to them go back. But ultimately, Brown had his finger on something, particularly in the year of Watergate and Chinatown. He wins the Democratic primary. He beats those other two men two weeks before the release of Chinatown on exactly the same thing, you know, kind of this theme of we need to clean up government, we need reform. Hayden and Fonda kind of go through a similar transition. I believe this is the moment where Jane Fonda came in from the cold. Like the Jane Fonda you know today, I think... Uh, really is beginning, you can see the turn that, that, that in the early 70s, she was kind of spiraling out toward the edge, toward ever greater alienation from American society to the point that ultimately leads her to be on that gun in Hanoi. But what happens in, in particular, some in 72, but particularly in 1974, her and Tom Hayden in a story that I'm really proud of uh, telling find a way to re-engage in kind of mainstream politics without abandoning their ideals. But again, grappling with this question of what of those ideals can be adapted to the realities of the 70s. And in the same way that Jackson Brown wrestled with that question, uh, in the same way that Shampoo uh, wrestles with that question, the same way that Jerry Brown did, Tom Hayden Jerry, and Jane Fonda did. And they found a way uh, to become engaged in lobbying Congress to cut off funding for the war rather than just kind of marching and demonstrating against the war and you'll see there's there's a there's a generational it's kind of a you know a generational inflection point where the baby boomers are getting older they're they're getting they're having families they're buying houses and those who have been part of these social movements were looking for a way to try to make change in their lives and in their communities uh, but also recognizing that they were, that they could not disengage from the society or disconnect from the society to the extent they had thought earlier. Uh, and that, in, that's really kind of the overall story of the whole book.
0: Yeah, it is. And I, I think there is a, and I say, it's a great, it's a great read. And, uh, but the thing that I like about it is in the end you, you talk about how the, the forces of fear uh, can win for a while, Mm -hmm. Um, But in the end, the future, if you will, wins out that that there is an optimism, notwithstanding all of the soul searching and 1974 revelation of the fissures in our society and corruption. In the end, the future gets the last word.
1: It always does. I mean, Richard Nixon won 49 states. And all of the changes in the way we live that he seemed to be a wall against unfolded. I mean, you know, there's, uh, obviously people have much greater personal freedom than they did uh, in the early 1960s. There is more tolerance of, uh, sexual difference. There's more inclusion, although this was a blind spot, certainly even then, of different voices from different communities. Um, women uh, obviously have, a, have, a, have, have more greater personal freedom. Uh, not not you know, In no cases are we talking about full equality, but there's no question we're a different place than we were for women, for African-Americans, for Hispanics, uh, for the LGBTQ community. Um, the future gets the last word. Um, you know, and I, I do think that uh, Trump has shown that there is an enormous constituency that can be mobilized the way the society is changing. I mean, I wrote in 2012 that I believe that we now fundamentally, the fundamental dividing line in our politics is between those who, those who welcome the way the country is changing, demographically, culturally, socially, economically, and those who fear it. I would call it the coalition of transformation and the coalition of restoration. The coalition of restoration is a little bigger than I Uh, probably thought it was, Um, you know, as you look at Trump's support um, uh, in in the last election, but it's not a majority of the country. And particularly among younger generations, I think that that inclusion and tolerance are really bedrock values that are going to cause us to live differently in 10 years. A lot of the things we're fighting, you know, steadily over time, you know, we, we fought about Gay rights and gay marriage, and now we 're fighting about transgender and, and, and inclusion of, um, of, of of black and Hispanic leaders in, in, in our society. I just think all of those things are going to look radically different in ten years, and the politics is behind the culture in chain, in, in, in reflecting uh, how we live and again that doesn 't mean that a left perspective is always going to win elections. there are a lot of reasons you know, why the, the field is tilted toward the, the more traditionalist side, the Senate, the Electoral College, events that, that occur. But it does mean, and so I'm not forecasting a, a um, you know, a permanent victory for the left politically any more than the, the 60s produced a permanent victory for the left in the 70s and 80s, far from it. What I am forecasting is that the changes you see in popular culture, the values that are upheld, the, the, the heavy, heavy emphasis on tolerance and inclusion that is a forecast of how we're going to be living in 10 years, regardless of what the politics look like.
0: Yep. So Ron Bronstein, as always, whenever I spend time with you, I learn more than I'm able to absorb. It Ooh. takes me weeks to think about everything we've said. This was a terrific conversation. Thank you so much. It's a it's a great book. Rock me on the water. Everyone um, should, should read it and study it because there are so many life lessons in it, for then and now. So,
1: Michael, thanks not only for having me, but for really reading the book so carefully and and, and getting uh, what I was trying to say. So thank you for that. Good to be with you.
0: That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin. What's so special about Hero Bread? Soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas. These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at hero.co. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes, like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.